There we go. All these files. There we go. Okay. And I'm calling, you know, I'm calling the institutions of government God's divine delegated institutions. They're his institutions of delegated divine authority. The third of those, after you have individuals with you and God, the, the responsibility that he's given you to make your choices using your volition, which really is about you and him. The next is marriage. When God made woman, he simultaneously made marriage. When God made a woman, he simultaneously made marriage, and marriage is between a man and a woman. And anything else is something else. But that's what God did when he made it. And that's why, in part, there's so much of a big attack about this today. It's not really about people's preferences in terms of Satan's strategy, in my opinion. It's more about uh, undoing the institutions. It's more about going after God and saying, you're not going to say what I am. You're not going to say what I'm supposed to be, wife or mother. You're not going to say what I'm going to be now, man or woman. You're not going to tell me that. And even, interesting, they say that gender, well, they say gender. They say that, that somebody's sex is assigned at birth. And that, that's, that it's a little bit clumsy language because um, sex is determined genetically at the instant of, of, uh, of um, conception. That sex is settled right then. And, but okay, but the word assigned. Who assigned it? Right? The doctor didn't assign that. The doctor noticed. He observed what had been assigned. He's just saying, look what I see. Or look what I don't see. <laughs> right? that, that's, that's, that determination is made. And um, so really it's about authority. It really is about God is God and he gets to be the creator designer. And we are fitting within his creation design as his creatures or, or that's not true. And throwing off the yoke of divine um, intention and design is really the, 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 the order of the day we live in. <clears throat> so we talked about volition. We said all the, all the uh, institutions of authority are delegated from God. That's why in Romans 13, all government's from God. All authority proceeds from God, including human government. But they're all derivative of the first one, as we said, divine institution one, your volition, your capacity to choose, which is a big part of bearing God's image. And you could Im- illustrate it this way, that all of these things, marriage, you have des- decisions to make, like, do you get married? That's why the two people are asked, do you, with your volition, choose to do this? It's a volitional thing. There's always volition involved. You can say, well, in the ancient world and other ancient traditional cultures, it was an arrangement of parents. Parents are choosing. There is a volitional component. And I, I would take you back to before David, before 1,000 B.C., more than 3,000 years ago. Samson says to his parents, get her for me. I want that one. And his parents say, not that one. Go get one of, one of the people from our country, from one of our believing uh, Jewish girls. No, I want that one. And they do. So don't tell me that parents don't have, and, and their children in, in traditional cultures didn't have this this, this arrangement. Of course, parents would make this joining the families together, but the kids are involved, is my whole point. It, it, it's absurd to think that, um, that women were just sold as the norm throughout world history. No, women are all daughters of fathers, and fathers are either on, on some spectrum of monster to uh, good man. They're, in, they're somewhere in there, 
And not all the men are monsters. Enough of them are that it, it sets our teeth on edge and we get righteously indignant about it because it's awful what wicked men do to their children at times. But that's not the norm. It's not the historical norm. We have sinful people, but generally we're not as sinful as we could be. And so this idea that, you know, that, that men have sold their daughters as the norm in traditional culture, I think is, is a little rich. It's a little much. My theory is uh, more that um, parents tend to take care of their children. It's their tendency because we're made that way despite our fallenness and brokenness. And we don't do it perfectly, but um, I think arranged marriages historically were seen largely in the interest of the best for their kids if you had loving parents. And certainly for Christians, that's been the case. For Christians, the the gospel has the impact and we actually love God, so we love one another for God's sake. Yeah, we're going to... It's not about what can I get out of my daughter in this marriage union. It's what can, um, what can God have, how can we make decisions to please God in their case? That would be Christian choices, and we have 2,000 years of Christian history. So I'm just be very careful about the question of volition in marriage. It's always there. And, and if you look at the 2,000-year-old New Testament documents about what Paul says, how to conduct yourself in marriage, it's volitional. Husbands love your wives. Wives submit to your husbands in Ephesians 5. There are family decisions all the time. It's all volition. Civil government and the nation, local church. These are all institutions of delegated authority that have hierarchical structures in them. But there is, in every case, every individual is making choices. And the question is, why do you choose what you choose? And if you figure the answer out is worshiping God is the reason I make my choices. This is the most important question any of you can ask. Young people, listen. Why do you choose the things that you choose? Why do you do it? Right? Think. Don't float along through life and and say, well, we're just on this current, this river of cultural things that people, this is just how everyone does it, how everyone thinks, or don't go inward and just my sin nature tells me. And I just feel like, think about why you do the things you do. Because that's, that's an opportunity for you in your decision-making to wisely worship God with your choices. And to float along, according to the world or your sin nature, is not, is not going to be to worship God. And that's the difference. Are you going to be a thinking person or are you going to let the world tell you you're an animal? Are you going to be a thinking image bearer, bearing God's image, or are you going to be an animal? All right. Enough review. Let's get into, well, let's review marriage a little bit. We had DI1, you and God. You have the moral anchor point is God. He says what's right, not me. The moral anchor point, that's God's role. What else does God have in the relationship? He says, this is the rules. House rules, this is how it is. And God says it. I don't say it, right? I'm over on the, um, on the left side. God's on the right side in Michelangelo's painting on the Sistine Chapel ceiling, right? This is God's decision to what his character says what's right and wrong, and then his, his word tells me what is right and wrong for me to do because he said it. And with that comes accountability to him. And it always is going to be this way. And accountability is a heaven and hell. It is the lake of fire for those who reject a relationship with God through his son. It is the lake of fire. That is the ultimate accountability. And it is as though God is saying, if you will not have a relationship with me, this is what it's like accountability. And with accountability comes enforcement. 
One way of, ha- of, of describing accountability is that the person with the right to say, the authority, and the, the legislation, the law that he puts out from his character, that he says, okay, this is wrong, and you have fallen short of the expectation of the legislation, right? He, he renders the verdict. But sentencing is the enforcement side, right? Where he not only says, uh-uh, that was wrong. He's not this benevolent, um, benign a righteous being who doesn't have uh, consequences inherent to the system. There's enforcement. And uh, it's a, a writer of Hebrews says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And then, but th- the thing that we, we also want to summarize, that God starts love toward us and points it at all of us. And it's his infinite love. God is love. And I'm not saying that as an afterthought. I'm saying we can overdrive the theonomy, the God is God and the lawgiver and it comes from his character and all these things that are true, and forget that everything God does is, is consistent with all of his character. He acts in righteousness when he, care, when he righteously judges, but it's always within love and it's, the, it's always happening that way. The God always acts consistently with the entirety of his character. And that's God's role. What's your role? You submit to him. Bottom line. I've had people say, no, in the age of grace, you're talking about under law. In the age of grace, no. Yeah, yeah. You'll never get past for all eternity the creator-creature distinction. He's the sovereign, omnipotent, infinite God, and we are not. We're in Christ, who humbled himself before the Father and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Right? So we submit to our creator. We pay attention to him. When the king's speaking, we listen. We obey him because having generally submitted as our orientation of life, I then am attentive to hear what he has to say so that then I know what I'm supposed to choose and I actually do the things he said. It's all of these things together. Submission, attention, obedience. And he wants me to be like him. Anybody have a verse where God wants you to act like him? Oh, yeah. Be holy as I'm. Who who said that? God. God said that to whom? Didn't he say that to Abraham? Wait, wait, no, that's, that is, that's the law. Be holy as I'm holy, as he's talking to, um, to the Levites. Um, Abraham, he says, walk before me and be blameless. Um, Ephesians 5.1 says, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. Just as Christ gave you an example imitators of God. The imitation of God's a big deal in the New Testament. He wants you to act like him. Oh, well, I'm going to start making law. That's not the sense in which we act like him. We walk in love. We, in obedience of his instructions, find ourselves acting like him. He's telling you to be like him. Emulation. And then responsive adoration would go with that initiating love. God has loved me and equipped me to love him back. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Now, you can bring what you've got in the flesh, your capacity to love, without God, and say, God, I have this present for you, and it is, um, it is filthy rags uh, made in a box of refuse, and it's for you. Have it. And I would say, well, almost like a little kid that brings you a present that's, you know, some sort of rotten dead animal or something. Thank you for thinking of me, right? But not really acceptable. But let me help you. Let me show you how to love. Let me show you how to do 
the response that you need to do. And that's what God does. That's worship of him. And he's empowered you as a believer in Christ in this age by his spirit to do it better than has ever been possible in world history. This is divine institution one, you and God. The second one is super controversial. We talked about it in 1 Corinthians 11, Ephesians chapter 5, Colossians chapter 3 as some of the clear places. And then we looked in the Proverbs about marriage. In 1 Corinthians 11, the man is the head of the wife. So she's the body, headship and bodyship. His job is to lead. His role is to lead. Hers is to help. She's his helpmeet. And it doesn't mean that she is just merely an assistant. It means that she is an, an integral component in the effort necessary, but he has to lead. They're both self-sacrificial. His is an initiating initiating love. Hers is a constant attitude of self-deferring submission so that as he initiates love, she's replicating that. And that's Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. You and your mate. Happy Valentine's Day, everybody. There's a picture out in uh, the common space that you can attribute and show people. And if anybody's wondering about copyrights, this is an educational event, so fair use anyway. But this is Brad Paisley. Uh, around 2000, I want to say 10 or 7. doesn't matter. He always looks the same. He's one of these guys that just doesn't age. But he, uh, is, he released this great song in 2006 called The World, but he didn't write it. Kelly Loveless and Lee Thomas Miller wrote it. Do you all know the song The World? I, I bring this up because we're in a cultural moment where if you look at what's coming out as cultural, what people are clapping for ABC News, uh, ABC, the network, you know, and their Twitter account said before Sam Smith got out and did a satanic, you know, dance the other night at the Grammys, uh, ABC tweeted out, we, we're ready to worship. And then it was a satanic uh, orgiistic presentation for prime time because that's what pop culture in America is today. And we're just pushing the envelope, but there's nowhere to go with it. They already did it. They had the uh, little Nas X did it uh, before. Same thing, you know, say, Satan dance. Um, by people that are basically denying their creator and his design on their lives. I just want to point out, this really isn't our culture. It's really not. What Brad Paisley did in 2006 is really more like our culture. I've got a couple other examples. But in the song, The World, I'll just share you a little bit of what he said, what Loveless and Miller wrote. To the t- and, and Brad Paisley helped write it. He's a co-writer of these songs. He's, he writes his music. He writes his songs. He's a very talented um, artist. But he's talking about his wife. He says, to the teller down at the bank, you're just another checking account. To the plumber that came today, you're just another house. At the airport ticket counter, you're just another fare. At the beauty shop, at the mall, well, you're just another head of hair. See, you got to, it's country music, so it has to be a little bit funny. Well, that's all right. That's okay. Now, that's not the best written line ever. That's all right. That's okay. I mean, I could write that. (laughs) If you don't feel important, honey, all I've got to say is, to the world, you may be just another girl, but to me, baby, you're the world. It's a great little turn of phrase. And if you've heard it, the music is better than the words. The way, the the melody of this song and the pacing of it, it's fantastic uh, for our folk music. And this is our folk music. This other stuff, the stuff that, you know, that Elvis came up with. He's borrowing from our folk music and adding some other elements to it. But I'm just saying this is, this is where we're from, and uh, we're still able to say these kinds of things. So Brad Paisley. Anybody know who that is? This is another Wikimedia Commons image I'm allowed to show of Tim McGraw. 
And I don't know these guys' real names, so just bear with me. That's their public name. But Tim didn't write this. He, pre, he recorded it in 1997, but the writer was Mark Nessler and Tony Martin, these two, this writing team that wrote this really interesting song called Just to See You Smile. Anybody ever heard that song? Now it's like 30 years old. It's this oldie, Just to See You Smile. 1997. But it's, it's, a, it's a reflection of your culture. He says, you always had an eye for things that glittered, but I was far from being made of gold. That's a pretty good way to say it. Right? Guys, we marry up. We don't deserve the wonderful thing God has given us in giving us a wife. You always liked things, had an eye for things that glittered, but I was far from being made of gold. I don't know how, but I scraped up the money, just never could quite tell you no. Just like when you were leaving Amarillo, taking that new job in Tennessee, and I quit my job so we could be together, I can't forget the way you looked at me. And so what he's painting is this picture of his self-sacrifice for this girl because he's so hung up on her. And the song's kind of sad. It's actually a tragedy song. It's one of these country songs about you lost your truck and the, you know, got repoed and the dog got run over on the way and the repo people got your truck to hit your dog and, you know, now you can't get in the car and go see your mom in the hospital. All the horrible things in country music. Well, this is one of these tragedy songs, but the chorus is what gets you and that's how these songs work. Just to see you smile, he said, I'll do anything you wanted me to. When all is said and done, I'll never count the cost. It's worth all this loss just to see you smile. And again, if you hear the way that that's set to music, it's really a beautiful thing. Again, it's a sad song and a good, good, good country tune. And it's part of our culture. And I would just, again, we have to tell the truth about the culture. It isn't just ugly. It isn't just provocative. It isn't just kill yourself with, with wickedness and choke on all the satanic you know, sexual perversion we could possibly shove down the children's throats. It's not that. It's not mutilate the children um, and call it medical care or standard of care, right? So even further back, 1990, ancient history. I mean, this is before the Gulf War. One, right? Whoa, way back there. George Strait. This isn't him in 1990. This is a more recent photo of him. King George, as we transition to Ephesians 6, uh, Helped write, I believe, uh, no, no, he sang what, an Aaron Baker song and recorded in 1990, and it's still on the radio today. And it's called Love Without End, Amen. And he says, I got sent home from school one day with a shiner on my eye. Fighting was against the rules, and it didn't matter why. When Dad got home, I told that story just like I'd rehearsed, and then stood there on those, tr- stood there on those trembling knees and waited for the worst. So it's, a, it's, it's one of these story songs. See, Great country music tells stories, part of your culture, part of your tradition. It goes back to Beowulf. All right. The old ballads are, are legends and epics and stories, and this is still in our culture. We tell stories with our songs. And, and this isn't really that old. But what's beautiful about this song, and, and then the writing is some of the most ingenious country music writing, <clears throat> is the chorus keeps coming back, and they keep changing how it applies. So the little boy in, in the picture is worried about his father, is going to spank him, it's 1990 in Texas. His father's going to spank him for fighting at school, and he got in trouble. He got sent home from school. So if you get in trouble at school, you know, you're in trouble at home is the idea, and he's got a black eye, and maybe he's worried that his dad's mad that he got a black eye, and uh, did, you, did the other kid get a black eye? But anyway, um, it's a typical thing. Before internet, before people were being bullied on phones, before someone was told that they're going to be killed or tortured or something on social media so that they 
do the easy thing and commit suicide at a young age, at 14, 15, so that they can't be bullied anymore all night long as they're going crazy in their teenage angst with the hardest part of your life going through puberty with people sending hateful things into your soul through your devices all night, all day. I remember being bullied at school. I remember the, the older kids wanted to fight me. That's because I had an outsized mouth and I didn't know uh, what was going to happen when I used it. And, um, and I learned you're going to get punched in it. And that's, that, that's what happens. And I remember uh, having that terror. You and I are going to solve this today after school at 3.30 over by the swings. And I remember that. I remember, I don't want to do that. I'm in sixth grade and you're in eighth grade and that's going to hurt. And I remember having to go face that. And here it is. And, and it wasn't pretty. And I wish I could tell you that I, I had some, some sort of martial arts skills or providence or something. Actually, no, I just got beat up, right? It hurt. And, um, and then I learned to box. <laughs> and then I didn't really have to use it much after that because I was more comfortable. But anyway, the point is um, we all have this, this memory. Well, today it's much worse. The culture is far down the road on this bullying thing and this fighting. Used to the kids would fight and they had to learn. Now... They can't get away from the terror of people sending awful things to them all the time and this, this internet bullying. Let me tell you something, young people. If you see bullying, you should shut it down. If you are in a position where your friends are involved in this and, and just throwing shade on people and being nasty to them uh, on social media, you should call it out and say, don't do that. That's the wrong thing. That's the bad thing. That hurts someone because you have no idea the impact of just a few words on a young soul as they're growing up right? We have, we have a sacred trust in children, and we're really not helping them. If we're allowing them to be exposed to this kind of pressure when they don't have the tools to handle it, guess what? Everybody in the world's a sinner, especially kids, and they're awful, and they have wicked things to, to think and say, and they're playing Grand Theft Auto all afternoon, and they've punched 50,000 people in the face for no reason on the game, and now they're just going to do it to each other verbally, and it's horrible the kinds of things they do and say. And, you know, of course, we could hobby horse this all day. But so George Strait's telling the story that the little boy's about to uh, get in trouble with his daddy. But then the daddy speaks. He says, the chorus, let me tell you a secret about a father's love. A secret that my daddy said was just between us. He said, daddies don't just love their children every now and then. It's a love without end. Amen. It's a love without end. Amen. The great thing about this is it takes you from him being a little kid Verse 2 is about him being a father with a difficult son that he uses these words on his son because he's out of patience with his son. And then he has a dream about after he dies and goes to heaven, and he says, they shouldn't let me in. And the quote is God saying this, thing, saying, oh, you don't have the words. Let me tell you a secret about the a father's love. And so the, the culture has changed, and I don't just want to say, Sam Smith and Little Nas X and general mutilation of children <laughs> and all that, those go together. And there's a reason they're, they're portraying Satan in their art. Okay. I'm not just saying set that against the country music culture and see the difference. Country music culture has slid off the rails too. It's mostly about sex and mostly doesn't sound like country music anymore. And um, I don't mean to be oversimplifying things, but I'm just saying we've kind of moved apart from ourselves and our culture, and it's our decision uh, whether we're going to follow. That's my introduction to divine institution number three, household. Let me tell you a secret about a father's love. Well, it turns out that in every divine institution, volition 
is the central functioning uh, thing, the, the central unit of, of the function of the institution. In marriage, two people have to make choices. And it isn't that I, if he makes the choice, she says, then I'll do. And isn't, he says, well, if she'll love me back, I'll, I'll, I'll keep loving her. It, it isn't that way. It's that God is constant with his expectations and his provision. And God says, I always want you husbands to love your wives. Wives, I always want you to submit to your husbands as to me. And I want you to trust me as you do it. And as Peter says, without any fear. And, and that constant walk with God makes constant obligations and duties for us to make decisions. And that's the only basis for stability in marriage. Turns out this is how it works in parents and children also. In Ephesians 6, children obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. I want you to notice as we read through, there are some really strong rationales in Paul's writing for the commands that he gives, but we'll look at it in detail. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. But not just children's responsibilities, not just the lower in authority, wives, husbands, children, parents, uh, slaves, masters, or labor management in our culture. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. In Ephesians 6.1, it says the summary command. And the verb is for obey is hupokuo. It's very interesting to me that in Ephesians 5.22, wives submit to your husbands. It's a hupotasso. Place yourself under. Submit. That's the word hupotasso. But in parents and children, when you talk about children's responsibilities, it's hupokuo which is to listen, akuo, with, an, uh, with a little intensifier, that hupo in front of it. And what's happening there is that if you listen with an intensity, you're going to obey. That's the idea, that the, where the word obedience in Greek comes from. The etymology is it's a, an intensive listening. The word means in Paul's day to obey, to do what they say, because you heard what they said. You hear what I said? Do what they say. Well, there's three steps. They said it, I heard it, and then I did it. It's the doing that he's talking about. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Now, that's the command. It's a present active imperative. It's an ongoing responsibility that children have toward their parents, but it's not just about their parents. Every institution, every institution is composed, composed of people who are personally relating to God in DI1. So for my sake, the Lord is telling the children, obey your parents. The Lord is saying, for my sake, you children obey your parents. So it's not just about mom and dad. Mom and dad may be off the rails. And, it, and, it does, and look at what happens. It protects you. Mom said, disobey God. Well, no, you don't obey that one because you're obeying your parents in the Lord. Dad said, disobey God. No, I can't do that one. You are the three children of Israel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Before Nebuchadnezzar saying, we'll submit to you, O king, but we won't do that. And so it's, it, don't take the text to mean something that it can't mean. There are monsters among us. I don't mean in our church family, but in our culture, in our zip code, right here, right around us. There are monsters. I'm sure of it. I don't know who they are. I don't know who they are. I just know the numbers. We do, in this culture, we do not care about the protection of childhood of children. We don't. We're proving it constantly with, uh, with genital mutilation and chemical castration. With, with what they're saying is a standard of care, affirming, they call it gender-affirming care, for children that cannot buy spray paint 
But they can make decisions for mastectomies and other things. They can, they can, they can, they can cause themselves to be sterile for life with, with puberty-blocking hormones and, and then cross-sex hormones as minors. But they can't serve in our military because they're too young and their bodies aren't developed enough to, to shoulder that load yet. It's insane. And, and I'm just showing you the most recent example of how we don't care about kids. I'm talking about the retribution for those that hurt children. We're, we're way too humane with those that hurt children. That hurt the, the, Jesus said, a, a millstone around his neck. I wish we'd do that. We got water. Commend them to the sea. Right? And, and I, the idea that it's, well, they, you know, there's, they, they have a problem. Yeah, we don't have a problem with them anymore. They have a problem, but, but they're no longer a problem to us. And, that, and the, the curse dies with them. And, and I, I'm, I'm not calling for violence. I'm not. I'm not calling for violence. I'm saying that we as a culture do not honor the, the injured. And the numbers of, of, uh, of offenders, sex offenders for children that are caught, they have, they have hurt hundreds of people, statistically speaking, on average. They've hurt dozens and dozens of children before they get caught, before they get into the system. There are monsters among us, and it's horrible to think, and, and I'm not talking about that when I say children obey your parents in the Lord, right? We have nothing but tears to shed and compassion to have for people that are victims of wicked parents who should have been their, their, their bastion. They should have been their shelter. They should have shown them what it is to have a rock so that they know what it's like to have God the Father as your father. They should have that as an image, and dads, that's what we should be. So that the kids have a, they have a rough sketch of the God that, that we're, we're training them to love. But so often, obviously, that doesn't happen and it breaks us. It hurts our, hurts our, our souls to know that there are people who are hurt by their parents. But this is talking about children whose parents are, uh, are not uh, criminal and, and damaging to them. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. For this is right. And rationale number one, for children to obey their parents is it's the right thing. It's a moral argument. He doesn't start with there's a good consequence. He will get to that. External motivation, they call it. I'm motivated by if I do this, I get my treat. If I work hard, I get my paycheck. I'm motivated by the paycheck. Well, before you get to the paycheck, wouldn't you like to do your job well and have the satisfaction of doing it well? That's a better motivation. It's the right thing because it's how you're made. So do the right thing. That's the way he starts. Bear with me for a second, please. Honor your father and your mother. He quotes directly from Exodus 20, verse 12. And then he editorializes, said, which is the first commandment with a promise? The first commandment with a promise of the, t- of the 10 in chapter 20 of Exodus is this promise. Now, rationale number two is that it is one of the 10 commandments. He just quotes it and says, obviously, if we understand what the law is, which is a portrait of God's righteousness that he expects his people to have that no one ever fulfilled except Christ. Then you have a picture of righteousness. It's the right thing. For example, 10 commandments, love your, honor your father and mother, not love them, but honor your father and mother. And so that is rationale number two. It's one of the 10 that point to God's righteousness and show us that we fall short and we need a savior who he fulfilled the 10 commandments of the law. We trust in him and his righteousness is attributed to us. So we're not contradicting grace to point to the Ten Commandments. We're saying the Ten Commandments are a portrait of the righteousness of God, according to 2 Timothy 3.12, 3.16. 
Now, now we get the consequence. So that it will be well with you and you may live, be long lived literally on the earth. Rationale number three for obeying your parents, for kids to obey their parents, is that there's a desired result, long life on the earth. So I do have internal motivation. It's the right thing. I have external motivation, long life. The whole, the, the whole person is being addressed. Never, never let someone tell you that you shouldn't be motivated by rewards. God gives us rewards as motivation, but it isn't our only motivation. We're complicated, right? You know, loving God, serving God, living your life to please him, empowered by his spirit results in great reward at the judgment seat of Christ. And those rewards are more, more capacity you have to honor God with. You have crowns to throw at his feet. It's marvelous. It's a whole package. And it isn't just, oh, I just love Jesus and I'm not worried about rewards. Hey, you need ammunition. You need something to honor God with. You need those rewards. You're going to want that. So don't, don't let this uh, relationship say that we're not motivated by the, by the reward. But we do have a desired result in, in rationale number three. And as for fathers, he says, Kai hoi pateras, and as for fathers, and the fathers, do not pro orgizo, do not provoke to anger your children. Pro, uh, pa, uh, par, not pro, par orgizo. Par is a preposition thrown on a word to make angry, orgizo, to make angry. And so it's intensification of to make them angry, to provoke them to anger. Don't provoke your kids to anger. But rear or nourish, ectrepo. Ectrepo is ek plus trepho. Ectrepo, a preposition thrown on the front of a verb to uh, nourish, to feed so that it grows up. It doesn't mean feed them here. It means feed them training. It means give them the necessary input so that they grow as they should. And the imagery is nourish, is to feed them so they grow up. In the instruction and admonition of the Lord, there's two words here that are very important to us. Paideia, to instruct a child, the necessary rearing training that a child needs. Do not run in front. Wait for the elder person to pass by. If you approach a door, expect to open it for someone else to go through. Young man, that's you know, training necessary to a child. It's not about you. Number one, rule number one, it's not about you. Rule number two, check, check rule number one. It's not about you. Five minutes later, what's rule number one? Oh, I forgot. Training, it's constant. It's constant. Rear and nourish them in the instruction, the training, and nuthesia. Nuthesia, where you get nuthetic counseling. Nutheteo, the verb to correct or admonish. This is negative correction. This is admonishment at least. It might be kinetic, but it's the necessary correction which is very offensive to tell me that a child guaranteed needs admonishment or correction, but they do. Do you know why? Because they're born sinners. They're born sinners, and they're off to the races as soon as they can, practicing how they can, with their marvelous, ingenious faculties, invent better and better ways to sin. That's what we do. We're, we're made for it because of the fall. We, we, we take our, our, our ingenuity, and we connect it to our sinful nature, and we, we have the Grammys. And the kids have these lusts that they have to learn to restrain. And that's part of the process of growing up in the Lord. And so you're nourishing them with instruction and correction of the Lord. That's parents. That's their responsibility. What this means, in closing, is you can't just let them grow up. Well, you know, they're going to do what they're going to do. 
it is what it is, and other idiotic, trite phrases that people say. Boys will be boys, or whatever. It's just like this. Well, look, you're not going to, mom and dad, you're not going to make them make their choices. You're going to set conditions where they have the opportunity to exercise DI1, Divine Institution 1, them and God. They're going to make their choices. But you are responsible to set conditions. You're responsible in those conditions to be training and admonishing in the Lord. And you can't just let it go. And, you know, just, you know, I just trust the Lord. Let them be raised by the wolves or the culture. Let them just float along and they'll develop into whatever they're going to be. You're responsible by this verse for, for a lot of the negative consequences that happen when they aren't restrained in their lust and they are enforced by the world to, to go after their lusts. It's a battle. It is a battleground. And this verse tells you you've got work to do in the battle. The study of government is always a study of your volition. It's always a study in every case. What do you do in the ballot box? What do you do at the polls? What do you do when someone knocks on your door and says, have you considered this political party? What do you do in uh, the exercise of your rights, of your freedoms? These volitional choices amount to self-government. And the problem with us is we blow it. We make bad decisions. The problem with our government is it's made of individuals that won't worship God with their choices. That's the problem. The solution to our government is for people to change, to repent, to change their thinking and start making their choices to serve God. When God comes up in political discourse today, it's generally by the left and what they talk about generally as they make their appeal is some sort of green movement thing or some sort of, um, the, the, what was the, the senator from Virginia, uh, the pastor, Mr. Warnock, I believe says um, that, that Jesus is pro-abortion. He's for killing the infants in the womb. But he knows because he's a pastor. We read about him. You can read about him in Acts 20. That, that the elders in Ephesus from among your ranks, wolves, will arise not sparing the sheep. Obviously. It's all over the place. We have a horrible, wicked world that we're living in that God allows us to work in that he's got. And greater is he who's in you than he who is in the world. But remember, it's a battle. Marriage is a battle, but not with your wife or husband. Raising kids is a battle, but it's not fighting the kids. It's you're fighting your tendencies of sin and theirs, and you're worshiping God and your choices. Father, we ask for wisdom in government. We need wisdom in government in our own lives. And Father, that will begin in some of our hearts or, or consistently work in some of our hearts against self-righteousness. Father, help us see government in your terms and make our decisions to please you, regardless of the circumstances of our local civil or even national government. We pray in Jesus' name. We all said, amen.